The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, we are joined by Markham Hislop, publisher and journalist at Energy Media. Markham is a Canadian energy and climate journalist who conducts video interviews with global energy experts. He also hosts the Energy Talks podcast, writes the Markham on Energy, Energy Politics Analysis columns, and writes about the energy future. He is frequently interviewed on Canadian radio about energy transition issues and is CBC Radio Canada's Green Switch columnist. Now let's get into the episode with Markham. Welcome back, Dave. Well, thank you, Lysandra. And our uh, co-host is not here, John Pooley, but uh, he's, he's going to lose hope because we have a fantastic guest here today, and I'm looking forward to to speak to Markham, well, there's going to be some really good content. Yeah, I know John was looking forward to this conversation as well, but I guess he'll have to listen to us in the future, so all is well. Today, we're joined by Markham Hislop, publisher and journalist at Energy Media. Welcome, Markham. Well, thanks for having me, Lysandra. And hello, Dave. Hey, nice Markham. to meet you as well. So we talk about this a lot internally about how we got into the industry. So to kick off this episode, how did you get involved in the energy industry and what keeps you in the industry? Well, my father joined Manitoba Hydro in the 1960s. And in 1971, we moved to a little town in northern Manitoba called Gillum. A lot of people will know where Churchill is up on the Hudson Bay. Well, Gillum is about 100, 150 kilometers south of that. And it's just it's on the Nelson River. And that's the, the big uh, river where Manitoba Hydro has built all, or most of its dams. So the one that my dad worked at was called Kettle Rapids, and he was the maintenance supervisor there. And so I kind of grew up, you know, running around this 12 generator, you know, huge hydro station. And then when I got to to high school, I was employed by Manitoba Hydro working summers and then a year after, after high school in their converter station because you generate AC and transmit DC. There we go. So you have to convert it. Uh, for transmission. And then at the other end of the line, 1,100 kilometers away down near Winnipeg, you have to uh, convert it back. So anyway, that that was my introduction to the energy industry. I kind of grew up with it. And then uh, when I was living in Calgary from in the, uh, the 2000s, from 2003 to 2008, uh, I helped a, a company break into the U.S. market. They were in the oil and gas manufacturing business. They produced some downhole I won't bore you with the details, but I got to uh, sit across from oil and gas engineers all over North America, worked out of Midland, Texas for a while in Bakersfield, California, Calgary, of course, and Wyoming, places like that. And so I, I kind of got the insight into the oil and gas industry down at the field level. So that was my little little hiatus from, from journalism and, and uh, communications. So all of that stood us in good stead when we started, my wife and I, Joanne, who's a also a journalist, uh, we started our first online news or, uh, business in 2008 in Calgary. And then we really, we were doing a lot of, uh, a lot of reporting and okay, you can't be in, in, if you're in Alberta, you can't avoid the energy industry or energy news. Uh, and we did more and more and more of that. Uh, until we started Energy Media in 2015. Markham, the your your experience and the uh, knowledge you have in the electrical and the natural gas and oil industry is is fantastic. Uh, because I 
like you, I, I've had exposure in both sectors, but I find most people, they stay in one sector and they never move out. Like the electrical people never go to the gas and gas people never go to the electrical. So your knowledge is uh, and experience is really helpful. And by the way, to our listeners, you got to look into Markham's podcast. They're just fantastic. I listen to him weekly. The content he has is just fantastic. So I'm really excited to hear. And so it brings me to the topic, which is, I think, very dear to both of our hearts. And that is, I believe, and, and in my heart, this energy transition is really something that we're, we have to go through, which most people don't really understand. They don't understand what it is. And listening to your podcast, I think you're, you're just as keen on how this has to be done and how it should be done correctly. But if you could, could you define what you would say is the, what is energy transition? What does that mean? I, I want to preface this question, uh, my answer with a little bit of information on my background. So in the mid eighties, I was doing grad graduate work at the university of Saskatchewan. I, I was a history major and I, I did my thesis on the transition from horses and steam to tractors and combines in Saskatchewan, 1900 to 1930. And the idea is it was, an, it was the last great energy transition. It was from horse, you know, muscle power and steam power to the internal combustion engine. That's essentially was the, trans, the transition. And you can, you can track it from the, the great big early steam tractors of the mid-1890s, and then along comes the internal combustion engine. And so you have some very crude tractors before World War I, and then after World War I, Henry Ford introduces the Fordson, the first you know, tractor that's really built like a car. And so it lowers the price and makes it much more reliable. And then the 1920s, you know, it, uh, tractors just are adopted at a rapid rate throughout North America in, in agriculture. And then along comes the combine in the mid 1920s. And now farmers don't have to rely on these big threshing crews and they can thresh when they need to and, and they can lower their costs. And by the, oh, by the end of the few years after the end of World War II, you couldn't find a horse plowing a field anywhere in Western Canada. And the process, the theory that explains it is very similar to what we're going through today. So when I, as a reporter, when I began reporting on energy, you know, 10, 12 years ago, and I, I, I already had the theory down. I understood the process. I understood you know, S curves and adopter curves and all of those kinds of things. And so that the, the way I explain this energy transition is we had the last one. So then we have the internal combustion engine. We have coal for generating electricity. We have gas for space heating and industrial processes. That's essentially the, you know, fossil fuels make up 80, 82% of our primary energy globally, even today. But what happened is back in the 1970s you have and 80s, you have the introduction of some new clean energy technology. So you have commercial solar panels in the 70s, you have wind turbines in the 80s, then in early 90s you have the uh, lithium-ion battery, and then later that decade you have the first commercial EV prototype. And so all of those technologies have been around for like 40, 30, 40, 50 years. And if you think of the S-curve, now, generally, if you think of an S-curve, you think of it as a cursive, right? But instead, think of it like a hockey stick. And a hockey stick with a really long blade, 
like, you know, four or five times longer than the one you would normally have if you were playing hockey with one. And what happens is the technology enters the market at the toe of the blade. And then there's this long period, decades long, where it's, it's getting better and better and better and lower in cost and higher in value for those who are, who are adopting it. And then finally, it hits the inflection point. And that the inflection point is when it becomes competitive in the marketplace and it begins to push out the old technology. And usually the rule of thumb is when that, the new technology gets to 5 to 10% of new sales, that's the inflection point. You can certainly see that with solar and, and wind. You can see that with electric vehicles. It's all in that, in that range. And so the technologies that are driving the energy transition today have been around for decades. But unless you're studying it, unless you're reporting on it, you wouldn't know that. You know, to the average, to the average consumer, the average person who's reading his news, you know, these seem, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, these were kind of oddball stories, you know, new technology. Oh, somebody's, you know, experimenting with solar panels on their, on their roof, that, that sort of thing. Now it's mainstream. And just to give you an example, yesterday I wrote a column that was about uh, China's rapid adoption of electric vehicles. And China is now 38% of all new car sales this year will be electric. Electric car vehicles are already 5% of the fleet. That's a, a big change. And they've got things like 600,000 electric buses. The rest of the world had adopted 400 last year. They've got 600,000 already in their, in their fleet. And then you have Europe is, is uh, ahead of us in North America, but North America is catching up quickly now. So the, this energy transition is driven by some core technologies, wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, heat pumps. But then there are all sorts of enabling technologies. So artificial intelligence, advances in material science, software, with uh, the internet. Without those technologies, these other technologies, the clean energy technologies, wouldn't have developed the way they did, and they wouldn't be adopted as quickly as they are. So essentially what's happening is thanks to the COVID uh, pandemic that started in 2020 and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, which was a big shock to the energy system and energy security became a big concern, that those two events really, really accelerated the, the energy transition. So now it's on the blade, sorry, it's on the shaft of the hockey stick. Right, it's going up exponentially. It's on the shaft of the hockey stick. It's disrupting energy, the energy system at a global level. It's disrupting it at the national national level as well. We don't see it as much in Canada because we already had a, you know, eighty four percent clean power grid, and so we didn't. But if you look down in the states, it is a madhouse. I mean, they are they're modernizing their power grid at a rapid rate. They've just brought in legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, some other acts. That's, that's pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into the clean energy, into the clean energy system, and then the clean energy industry. Because if you're going to switch to clean energy, you also have to make the equipment that enables that. So it's, that, that's a, a key point here, is it's not just the generation of energy, it's all of the equipment that's needed to both, both generate it and to, and to use that, the prime movers, as it were. And so what we have here is we are moving from fossil fuels to we're electrifying everything. And what we won't electrify 
will be some sort of low emission fuel like hydrogen or you know that sort of thing but then it's going to require a lot of electricity to make that fuel so if you say if you think of it as we're electrifying everything then then you've got the essence of this energy transition so and i've talked about the technology but we can't we need to say something about climate change and climate policy because that that was the impetus for a lot of these technologies in their early days they were subsidized by you know germany subsidized solar and even texas was subsidizing wind in the I don't know, a little factoid for you. George W. Bush bought in, brought in the Texas's renewable energy portfolio and is responsible for a lot of the early wind farms in, in Texas. So how, how, many, how many people would know that? Yeah, I ran across it someplace, but, you know, just picked it up on, in my travels. But that's the kind of thing. So climate policy got, it primed the pump. Now the pump is running on its own. The technology has become so good that it's competitive. It's, it doesn't need it doesn't need help to be competitive, but the climate policy is now dictating pace. So how fast we go will depend on things like carbon taxes and industrial policies and, and, and so on. And the indicators are that, you know, international governments are going to have stricter, more stringent climate policy going forward. So that only argues for the energy transition to be quicker than it is. So that's, in a nutshell, the energy transition is switch from fossil fuels to clean electricity or low emissions electricity and then electrifying all of the, the consumer goods and prime movers and our vehicles and our homes and industrial processes over a period. Probably it'll take us to mid-century and, and maybe a, a little longer than that. Now, in your opinion, how important is the energy transition? Well, one of the things I learned doing my graduate work is that the transition to the internal combustion engine and petroleum didn't just revolutionize agriculture, it revolutionized society, how we live. And it's interesting, anybody in Western Canada will know this, but there's a, a farm magazine called Western Producer, and it got started in the early 1920s. And the letters to the editor section was fascinating because you'd have all these farmers writing in and debating the merits of what was then called power farming. So tractors and, and combines. And one of the points that was made fairly often is that it's not just going to change the way we farm, it's going to change the way our society looks. It's going to change the way our, our uh, cities look. So over the period of time, uh, if you had a horse, you needed one quarter section, 160 acres. But if you had a tractor, you needed two quarter sections. Well, now you've just displaced the farm family next door because you bought, you bought their land. And then over time, farmers now, they bought another quarter section, another quarter section. My wife's family has a, a farm near Nipawin, Saskatchewan. They now farm one, the one cousin farms 3,000 acres using giant, you know, $300,000 combines and big tractors and so on. And basically, rural Saskatchewan is empty. You, you don't need lots of little towns, and you have these little, you have these regional hubs of five to ten thousand people that serve, a, you know, a great big area. And rural Saskatchewan has now been emptied out because you just don't need people. That's what they were arguing about in the 1920s. They foresaw that a hundred years ago, and and that urbanization, all of those trends, we're going to see something similar 
with this energy transition. It's going to transform how we get around. It's going to trans transform our cities. It's going to transform how we build, how we design. It so we're just at the beginning of this process, and I see a lot of you know urban planners and and economists debating this issue on social media. So it's it's we're far from set in stone how this is going to play out. But I think that's the that's why this energy transition is important. Climate change. So we have a response to the climate crisis. We we have an opportunity here to extend energy into for people who don't have it or don't have enough of it. So we can improve lives elsewhere. And in North America, the way we live in Canada, it's going to change fundamentally the, the way we the way we live. And that's that's amongst many reasons, why the energy transition is so important. Markham, what is the role of journalism in this energy transition? Because there's many people that are writing about this, and, and I'm sure you view them, and they all have different takes. But I'm curious what your opinion is, the role of journalism, to make this successful. Well, that's a, a very interesting question. And it's interesting that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there were a lot more energy journalists than there are now. The, the, the news media business has been hollowed out. Essentially, the revenue model got destroyed by the big tech platforms, Google and, and Facebook. And, you know, you, you can see if you've ever uh, if you want to Google a, a, a chart of a graph of uh, North American newspaper revenue, it peaks at about 2005, 2007, and then it just falls off a cliff. It's a fraction of what it used to be. And of course, newspapers in, in particular uh, began to lay off staff. And so we don't have the kind of energy journalism that we used to have. I, I would bet there might be 10 energy journalists in all of Canada. Uh, and the number of them are at, uh, you know, independent papers like the Narwhal and the National Observer. And, and uh, so the big papers now is generalists who, who cover these kind of issues. And we just don't have enough of it. And we don't have enough journalists who are delving into doing the kind of investigative reporting and the deep dives that we need to understand these. So at Energy Media, we just did a, a series called Unethical Oil because part of the narrative coming out of Alberta and the coming out of the industry has always been that Alberta is wonderful. Uh, you know, it produces the most environmentally responsible oil on the planet, the cleanest oil on the planet. It's ethical. And in fact, when you get into the, the details, when you sort of pull back the curtain on that story, completely, it's not. There are big problems. It's rotten at, at the core and it needs it needs to be cleaned up. But without news organizations that can devote the resources to do that kind of work and to have journalists who are well versed enough in the on the beat to be able to handle that kind of complexity it's very difficult so journalism uh, energy journalism is now more critical than ever and yet we have so little of it so, Markham, you have talked to so many different people from around the world that with, with vast amount of expertise in so many different areas regarding energy. So based on those interviews, can you share with us, what are the key steps on having a successful energy transition that you've grasped, whether it's from interviewing people or doing the research that you've actually uh, done yourself? Well, I've got three. 
the first one is that you can't expect the energy industry to lead. And I think we see that in the oil and gas industry. The I'm writing a, a, a big column right now on what's the, the difficult choices faced by the oil and gas companies. And I, and I have to say, most Canadians don't understand how important oil and gas is to the Canadian economy. Last year, the industry exported $201 billion, most of its product, most of it to the U.S. Number two was automobiles, you know, coming out of Ontario at $64 billion, you know, like about one third of oil and gas. It's a big, big industry. It, it attracts a lot of tens of billions of dollars in capital expenditures every year. It employs, you know, well over 100,000 people. So it's important. But if you're an oil and gas CEO and you are looking at the energy transition and they, and they you know, they recognize that, that there's an energy transition, you don't have an obvious pivot to a low carbon business model. And so the, in the absence of an alternative business model, when yours is being disrupted, you double down on the one you've got. You try to cut costs. You say, well, I'm going to be more competitive than the shale guys down in the Permian. I'm going to be more competitive than Nigeria or Brazil or Ecuador, my competitors in the U.S. market. And, and that's been their response. And that's, that's a real problem. So don't expect the oil and gas industry to lead. Don't expect utilities uh, to lead. And that leads basically, we need to return to kind of that 1970s approach Alberta talks about Peter Lougheed all the time, Premier uh, Peter Lougheed, who in the 70s established the petrochemical industry there, who set up the Alberta Energy Company, was really the, the father of the oil sands, all of that kind of stuff. So the, the government played a leadership role back then, which is because it was a very tumultuous time. The industry uh, needed leadership and we need to go back to that. So that's number one. Entrepreneurial state has to lead as opposed to the disrupted industries that are too busy just do, looking after their knitting to, to lead. The other one is importance of industrial strategy and policy. Now, industrial policy was big before 1980, you know, and it was very old fashioned. Basically, countries would pick a, a leader, you know, a, a champion like Nortel or in South Korea is a good example, you know, the Hyundai Motor Company. And you protect that company until it can compete on a national level, and then you withdraw your financial support for it. Now you have a big company that is a, you know, a driver of growth in, in your economy. Then in the 1980s, we got away from that. We went to much more market-oriented policies, and, and we backed off on industrial policy. Well, industrial policy is undergoing a renaissance, and you see it in the, in the United States with the Inflate, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which now is estimated to be likely by 2030, It'll spend between $500 billion and a trillion dollars on, on clean energy. And then they have other racks. And you see China has used industrial policy to direct the, the growth of the you know, solar panel manufacturing and wind turbine manufacturing and batteries. I mean, China dominates batteries. That all came out of industrial policy. Europe's doing the same kind of thing. So Canada is starting to, the last year or two, has recognized it has to be in that space too. You're starting to see the federal government bring in some policies. It's got the, the Green Growth Fund. It's got other pots of money that it can subsidize. I interviewed Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson last year, and he said it basically our industrial policy consists of carbon pricing, subsidies, and regulations. 
So that's our, our approach. And that's why you see uh, you folks are located in Ontario. And that's why you see the federal government subsidizing the Volkswagen uh, battery plant for $13 billion. And the Stellantis battery plant is because there's a rule, <laughs> there's a rule of thumb here. So if you're like China, you build it, right? You build the, that industry from the ground up. And if, but now we're at the point, if you haven't built it, the only option you have is to buy it. And so you may have saved money by not pouring you know, resources into industrial policy 10, 15, 20 years ago, like China did. But now if you want to play in the clean energy industry game, now you have to, you have to pay to get into the game. And, and that's what Canada is having to do. Now, the, the third option would be to do nothing. And I've heard lots of economists say, well, why are we subsidizing? You know, we'll just muddle through and just like we always have. The problem there is then you wind up with the old hewers of wood and drawers of water. And what we what do we wind up? Maybe we'll get some critical minerals, you know, critical minerals mining in Canada. Maybe we'll we'll expand our hydro and we'll do that sort of thing. But the industry, the stuff that the kind of the industry that that has R&D and employs a lot of highly skilled labor and has really high value supply chains, we miss out on that. So this is one of those we missed in the 19, you know, sort of the pre-war period last century. We missed a lot of that industrial development because we, it happened in the U.S., it happened elsewhere. But this is now an, a, a key moment for Canada. Do we step up and do we develop those clean energy industries like batteries and, and, and their supply chains and create industries that will be around for another 100 years and employ a lot of people, generate a lot of wealth, or do we miss out? So that's really important. The third thing is the clean electricity grid is the foundation of the 22nd century economy. And with we're we're lucky in Canada, we're at 84% zero or low emission, you know, 60% hydro, 17% uh, nuclear and so on. But we've been slow to to plan for expanding that. The economists I talked, I think it's pretty much rule of thumb now that we'll have to expand electricity generation by two or three times by by 2050. Well, you know, I live in British Columbia and and which is very lots of hydro, so it's almost all zero emission. But they get all that hydro from 32 hydro dams. So if we're going to double electricity generation in BC, are we going to build another 32 hydro dams? Well, that's not that's going to happen. You just don't have enough enough rivers anymore that you can do that. And so, you know, what's the strategy? And there's all sorts of options, you know, for more east-west trade and build out solar in Alberta and import, you know, trade back and forth. And but we have we're just beginning to have serious conversations about that. We're we're you know a decade behind uh, the Americans on that, and probably 20 years behind the Chinese and the and the Europeans. But we're we're slowly getting there. So those three things: uh, entrepreneurial state must lead, the importance of industrial strategy and policy and the importance of building and expanding a clean electricity grid. Mark, my, my follow-up is, I think like you, I believe if we as Canadians, if we don't get on this quickly, we will be in big trouble. And, you know, you conveyed relying on the energy industry, whether it's oil and gas or utility industry, that would be somewhat daunting or challenging for them to to do that. 
how can we engage the public? How can we get them more involved so they start demanding or requiring? Because we work with many large organizations and, and you know, there are some that are fairly aggressive in this area, but truthfully, most are pretty complacent. Like, you know, there are people that might be similar to my age. They're going, I, you know, I got a few years left. I'm not going to change anything. I want my bonus. How are we going to change that mindset? Because I, I think we have to do it one, to be competitive going forward. Certainly climate change, yeah, no, that's that's a big area of focus. But I, I'm actually thinking this is an opportunity. And I, I've heard you describe it even on your podcast and some of your guests. This actually will require a wartime effort to make it happen. I'll tell you another little story from my graduate work in the mid-'80s. I took a historiography class. And the professor, Professor Johnson, I think his name was, and Professor Johnson said, okay, here's a list of historians and you have to pick one and then you have to read their work and you have to, and, and you have to write an essay about how they approach history. And so I wrote, I, I picked this Arnold Toynbee Jr., who I didn't know from a hole in the ground. And his major work was the study of history. It had 11 volumes in it. <laughs> I was, it was, it was crazy. And, and I won't bore you with, with his theory of history, but here's one thing that stuck with me. Because he, he, he did history writ large, right, over millennia. And he talked about the rise and fall of civilizations. And he said, when, when there's a crisis, there's a, a key, something happens. It's a war, it's a famine, it's a something. Whether a civilization survives and rises or, or takes a blow and begins to decline depends on leadership. Some, the leadership in, the, in that nation has to step forward and, and do what's necessary to cope with that, with that crisis. And one of the things I don't see in Canada is leadership. I, you know, the, the oil and gas industry, you know, they, they push back with these narratives all the time about how this is going to be an energy transition that's, you know, it's not a transition, it's a diversification. Don't worry about it. It's going to be slow. We have lots of time. All of, you know, those sorts because they're incumbents. You know, their industry is being disrupted yes. and it's not in their best interest to say that it's going to be a fast transition because they don't have any options. Right. So, you know, and then we look at the provincial leadership. Well, you know, you've got in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba, you've got these regressive governments that, that are reluctant to embrace this. In, in Ontario has had some problems with the Ford government. Really what you've got is one or two of the governments, provincial governments in the Maritimes, BC and Quebec. That are, that are providing the leadership, that's not enough. And the federal government in, you know, is trying, but we're a very decentralized country. And the yeah. federal government can't, energy, energy is a provincial jurisdiction. It has limited powers for direct action and it really needs the cooperation of the provincial governments. So if you're, if you're trying to do something and you can't get people like Doug Ford in Ontario and Danielle Smith, in Alberta to cooperate with you and work with you, you're hamstrung. And then on top of that, we have a business community that is being, is not embraced the energy transition and is, you know, sort of dragging its feet. And we've got crown corporations in the in the electricity side that are doing the same kind of thing. So there's not, I think in Canada, our biggest problem is a dearth of leadership. And if we don't, 
if that isn't rectified, and in some ways, in my own modest way, this is one of the things I'm trying to do, is talk about these issues in a way that both influencers, like you know, political leaders and business leaders can understand, but also ordinary Canadians can understand. We need to have that conversation. We need to get more people on board, build the public opinion so that that leadership can emerge and we can do what's necessary. And we don't have a lot of time. That's the worst part of it. We're really, this transition is so much quicker than transitions in the past. And Canada, you know, maybe has till 2030 at the latest to get its act together and really do get into the game in a big way. And if we don't do that, then we're going to miss out. So, yeah, I, I am total agreement. I, I, if we don't get our act together and moving by 2030, and I, I do worry that may not happen. I think we're, the country is in big trouble in competing with other. And I, I try to convey that message to the executives that we work with, but, um, I'm not sure how receptive they are to that message. So thank you. For well, that. well, not, not very receptive. And, and that's the problem. And part of this is in Canada, we tend to be fairly insular. We look, we're looking inside. We're always, we have these big fights over energy and it's always about domestic industry. You know, well, Danielle Smith in Alberta uh, complains that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is trying to kill the oil industry. And, and we have those kind of, of fights. But you mentioned my podcast. One of the reasons why I created that was I wanted to talk to international experts. I wanted to talk to people in the industry, academics, uh, scientists, and so on, in the United States, in Europe, in Asia Pacific. And when you do that, and I probably interview about four or 500 people a year, like experts a year, and, and talk, I should mention, these are top quality experts. So International Energy Agency, Bloomberg NEF, SE&P Global, Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. These are the, the you know, top thinkers in the, in, on these issues. And when you do that, you get a, a much better sense of how rapidly the global energy system is being disrupted and transformed. And that hasn't been recognized yet in Canada. We still think we have lots of time. And we don't have lots of time. Thanks for a great episode, Markham. To end off this episode, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners? Well, I'm going to give you three again. One is the energy transition is moving faster than we understand. That's number one. It's Number two is that the transition is now primarily driven by technology, by markets and, and consumers and capital expenditures. And policy now primarily dictates pace. So if we want to go faster, we need to have we need to have better policy. And third, the energy transition is is transformative. It's it's you know we talked about this earlier. It's not just the energy system that's going to be other you know how it affects cities, how it affects all sorts of other systems that, that you know we use to in our daily lives. So it's this is those are the three. Thanks for that. Dave, what's your biggest takeaway? I think uh, I'll start at the end. The, the leadership we need to step up as Canadians. So it's time to put on the put on the big point pants and get going on this stuff. Like let's get at it, um, or else or else we'll pay, and that's a problem. I think the other thing that captured my attention. Uh, well, there was two other things that were a little the data points that uh, uh, the idea that Bush was actually heavily involved in, in the renewable industry in Texas, because we know that's quite a favorite. So I didn't know that. And then Markham, the other point of that, I think was 
5%, the reflection point, if you hit uh, 5% of, of the market going, then it starts shooting off. I had not, not heard that as well. So that was really good information for me. Yeah, I think for me, it was definitely hearing all your sources of information. And of course, that's part of your job. But it really shows that to have a good, well-rounded understanding of a topic, you need to have a diverse set of sources. And I really think you conveyed that and really explained the energy transition well for our listeners. So we really appreciate having you on today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, look forward to future interviews. Thank you very much. Have a great week, guys. Thank you. Yeah, you too. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts.